What a great week, really. I'm still trying to catch up on rest, but that's okay. As I get older, I realize this is a longer week than it used to be. I'm beginning to realize that. Babylon and the story. So here's the question you're probably asking right now, and if you're observant, you've noticed there's something different besides the drums up on our stage and in the sanctuary right now, and I'm pointing over, referring over to my left, there's a scooter in the church, and you're thinking, what is going on? Is that Ken's new mode of transportation? (laughs) That would be nice, but it's not. I wish it was. This is actually owned by uh, the Rollins, Merle and Shelley, and I think, I believe Shelley actually uses this. Is that true, Merle? Is that, okay, he's nodding yes. What a cool way to get to work. And just to go shopping, I'm very jealous. I actually got to drive it over from my house to here to get it in the sanctuary. So I drove it up the ramp a little bit precariously, thinking, man, if I wreck this, I am not going to be very popular with the Roland family. So what's the story there? Well, uh, about a week or so ago, we met with Esther and Krista Stare, our missions committee. And in the story, Esther is preparing to go to Cambodia. And next week, you're actually going to hear more about that in the service and in Sunday school downstairs. So come to the adult education hour, and then they'll be presenting a little bit in the service. But Cambodia and a new ministry for Esther. And one of the things she mentioned to the missions committee was that she needed a scooter to get around. And she said the cost of the scooter is about 1000 bucks. And so I thought, there it is. There is our mission, every year we do a missions project for VBS. And I said, there's our missions project. Let's bring this to the kids and let's raise a few hundred bucks. I, in my mind, I thought, hey, nickels and dimes, you know, we'll get a couple hundred bucks and we'll help Esther purchase this scooter. So that was my thought. Well, as the week went on, the kids gave generously and I have this sneaking suspicion that the adults jumped into it a little bit too. Because <laughs> all of a sudden we're seeing checks. Okay, so it's not the kids anymore here, unless they can sign checks. I don't know. So I don't know, Joe, do you, do you have the total? Emily, sorry. Do you have the total there? If not, that's okay. So I thought, well, 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 we'll raise what we can, and then we'll hand it over to Esther, and she can go and purchase the scooter. Well, what happened was things went crazy, and by the end of the week, we not only reached our goal of $1,000, we exceeded our goal, and we got up to over $1,200, $1,200 raised for a scooter for Esther. So... I'm excited, excited about that. So Merle's actually going to be riding this thing home So after church, so beware. That's just my, you know, clear out. We'll give him room, and uh, we'll get him out of here safely. Thank you, Merle, by the way, and to Shelley for loaning that to us. It was a great visual aid during the week. So Psalm 37, we're continuing this series on psalms, and um, as Josh mentioned, I get, you know, meeting with these pastors who are preaching the same passage is just wonderful. It's the best way to put it, and we all talk about it. We all share how we see the psalm and how we are going to preach it and how we are breaking it down and things that come up and questions we have, and it's fantastic. I love meeting with them. One of the things that's important in the book of Psalms, every psalm looks a little different. That's the thing I love about the book of Psalms. For example, Psalm 35, it was a psalm of lament. It was David just pouring his heart and soul out to God and saying, what's going on? 
I'm in trouble here, I need help. It was lament. And then there were elements of what's called imprecatory, where David was literally praying down curses upon his enemy. And those are difficult passages sometimes in Scripture to read and to hear in our culture, especially what's going on there. So we had that element. And last week, beautiful chapter, Psalm 36, it was... It had wisdom in it. The first four verses speak about the wicked, those who reject God. And it said in verse 1 there, it said there's no fear of God before their eyes. And so as a result of that, it goes on to share about how it affects everything in their life, the way they talk, the way they walk, the way they live. And so we saw a little bit of wisdom psalm in last week. And we're going to see some more wisdom psalm today in Psalm 37. But we're going to add a new element today, and this is an acrostic psalm. This is one of seven in the book of Psalms that are acrostic. And unfortunately, when it gets translated from Hebrew to English, we lose it. We don't see it. What is acrostic? Acrostic is basically taking the Hebrew alphabet, which consists of 22 letters, and approximately every other verse, if you could see the Hebrew, you would see it clearly, But about every other verse in this chapter begins with successive letters in the Hebrew alphabet and going all the way from the first letter to the 22nd letter, and they're all represented in this chapter. And I came across in one of the commentaries, why this acrostic? Why do they do this? And there's other portions of Scripture, by the way, that are acrostic. The book of Lamentation, mostly acrostic. Uh, The letters are there. Again, we can't see it. Um, Proverbs 31 the virtuous woman, that's an acrostic poem, a proverb, with successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet. We don't see it again, but it's there. So Psalms has seven of these. This is one of the seven. And Dr. Boyce, James Boyce, who was a great preacher and a great author who passed away about 18 years ago now, he said there's several reasons why he believes that the acrostic poems were used. And here's three. Number one... An artistic device used to add a certain beauty to the psalm, as rhyme does in our poetry. So it's, it's a creative element that adds this certain beauty to the psalm that's kind of unique. Just like in our poetry, it's more about rhyming. In Hebrew poetry, it wasn't so much that. Number two, maybe may indicate that the subject's being covered completely from A to Z, whatever their letter to their end, It's taking a subject and saying, in a sense, we're covering it from A to Z here. And we're going to maybe see that later on in in the month of August. Phil Rankin has talked about preaching out of Psalm 119. If you know that chapter, it's the longest one in the Bible, 176 verses, and it's an acrostic psalm. But basically, that's a great example of saying, look, we're covering from A to Z what God's word is. And that whole beautiful chapter, Psalm 119, is about the Word of God. So there's reason number two. And reason number three, and probably the most likely one to me, it makes sense, is this is sort of a mnemonic device designed to assist the young in learning the Psalms. So it's, it's a way to help people memorize, make it a little bit easier to memorize the Psalms if you make it an acrostic, starting letter A, then the next, you know, down through 22. So those are some reasons why they did this, and unfortunately we don't see it because it's translated into our language, and it's lost a little bit to us. But there's definitely some wisdom elements. We're going to see that in today's psalm. The wicked 
the righteous. Just like the book of Proverbs. It's going to sound like the book of Proverbs today a lot. What God is doing with the wicked over here versus what God is doing with the righteous, those that love him and follow him, and the contrast that you see. That's the wisdom literature in this great passage. Wisdom literature is directed to man. It's instructions to you and me about how to live, about how to respond to things. That's living in wisdom. Last week, it was about praise. Your love, O Lord. Remember that word, hesed? Your hesed love, your unfailing love, reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the skies. So it was about praising God. This week, it's about instructions to you and me on a horizontal plane, to, to man. So here's the big question, and he's going to start out. Look at verse 1 and 2 of Psalm 37. Do not fret. There's a great word. We'll come back to that one. Do not fret because of those who are evil or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Do you ever, in your mind, wonder why? When you look around in our world today and you see those who reject God, those who live a, a life that's wicked, and they're doing fantastically. And then you look at those of us who are faithfully following the Lord, desiring to please Him in our walks, and we're, we're struggling. Things are not going so well. Have you ever looked out there and went, what is going on? What is wrong with this picture? So the, really the big question here is why do good things happen to bad people and why do bad things happen to good people? It's that ultimate question that entered our brain the moment we walked onto a playground in elementary school. It's not fair. Life isn't fair. And it continues on into sporting events with a referee. I'm speaking to myself here. It's not fair. He's not calling the calls the way I want them to be called, and he's favoring the other team. Life is not fair. And we tell our kids this, and we know it's true, but you know what? Sometimes we bump up against it in our life. Life isn't fair, and it's hard. So David's instructions begin here in verses 1 and 2. He says, do not fret and do not envy those who have turned their back on God. The word fret is an interesting word. I, when I think of fret, I think of someone kind of twiddling their fingers and stressing out, kind of like this. The word actually means to heat over, to boil over, to bubble inside. You're thinking about it. You're going over it in your mind, and it's kind of this. You're, it's stewing inside. That's, that's the picture of fretting. And then envying. Why would you envy the wicked? Well, I can think of maybe three reasons in David's mind and sometimes in Psalms. Number one is maybe because they seem to be thriving. That's the, you know, they're doing great. Not so much here. So you see them thriving. Maybe that's number one. Number two, maybe they have something I don't have. There's where envy can really play in, right? We see someone have something I don't have, and I envy. I envy that. Or the third reason possibly is that their actions are directly affecting him, David, the author. Think back to David's situation. Here he is, and again, we don't have the exact circumstances that this psalm was written in. Sometimes we're given that, 
at the beginning of a psalm. It tells us exactly what was going on when David wrote it. We don't have it here. But in the broad picture of David's life, think about his story of how he was anointed to be the next king when he was a young boy, right? And how he ser actually served in Saul's court and played music for Saul, but yet Saul got envious of David for all the success he was having. So he had to run for his life. And so maybe in David's mind as he's writing this psalm, he's thinking about the nights I have to sleep in a cave. And here's King Saul, who's turned his back on God. He's in the palace. He's got an army that's protecting him. I'm out here in the cold, sleeping on the ground or in a cave, running for my life with just a few people around me trying to protect me. It's not fair. Maybe the wicked here are, are doing well and I'm not. Look what verse two says. It says like grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die. In their culture, in, in the Middle Eastern region there where this is written, the idea of green and lush could easily be taken away by the dry, hot desert winds that would blow and take it away. And he says, there's a picture there of the wicked. They're green one day, they seem to be prospering one day, but the wind's going to blow, and they're going to wither, and they're going to perish. And that's the story that the Lord is teaching David, saying, look at the big picture here. So don't fret. Don't envy. Asaph, turn over to Psalm 73. With your, put a finger on Psalm 37. We're going to come right back, because this is exactly, Asaph is writing this one. He is a person in charge of music in the temple, he wrote many psalms. Look what he says in Psalm 73. I'll just read the first three verses and then continue on from verse 12. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Starts out good, but look at what he says in verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. There it is. I fell into that trap of envying the wicked. Verse 12, this is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. I have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. You get the same sense that David was struggling with. There's the fret. There's the envy going on. Then look at 17. Everything changes. Till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Asaph said, I looked around. I saw the wicked. They were, life was good. They were prospering. I began to envy them. And everything was going that direction until I entered the sanctuary of God and I turned my heart and my mind to him. And I realize the end of the wicked. That's what we're going to see in this passage today. Do not fret, David said. Do not envy in verses 1 and 2. But beginning in verse 3 and going on down through verse 11, we're going to see six verbs that stand out brightly about what we're to be doing instead. Instead of fretting, instead of envying, do these instead. Okay? So the chapter's 40 verses long. Um, if I were to preach all 40, we'd be here a while. So we're going to, 
I'm going to try to move through this, but I wanted, these are the words that stood out to me as I read this passage. So look at verse 3. It starts there. Trust. Trust in the Lord, it says, and do good. Dwell in the land. Enjoy safe pasture. Faith cures fretting. Faith does a couple things for us. I think it gives us a clearer view of reality, of God's reality. It helps us to see from God's perspective. That's what faith is. It's putting on glasses that go, oh, it might look this way, but I see it from God's perspective now. Faith also gives us a view of the future, helps us to see beyond the present circumstances. Things are this way now. The wicked are prospering now. I'm beginning to fret and envy, but faith helps me to get beyond that and see long-term to what God is up to, to what God wants to do. That's what trust and faith do in my life. Look at verse 25 and 26 of this same chapter. I thought this was great. David says, I was young, now I'm old. Okay, is that, that's my story. I was young. I remember doing VBS and didn't phase me a bit. I'm old now. Yet, he says, I have seen the righteous, I have never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. They're always generous and they lend freely. Their children will be a blessing. This is old man David speaking from experience and a life lived, hard life lived, and he's speaking wisdom and he's saying, I've observed God in the long term and I've seen that God does not abandon those who follow him. The, the sentence, I've never seen the righteous forsaken, children begging bread. The question came up when we met as pastors, okay, what do you do with the reality of the world that we live in? Uh, there's a lot of hunger out there. There are children. There are orphans who are begging bread, who maybe love God, but they live in a situation that's very dire, in poverty and in famine and in situations that are difficult. What do you do with that passage? Is David lying to us here? What's going on? Basically, it, I think it's important. Wisdom literature speaks in general statements. For example, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Is that always true? Not always. You can train up children to love God. You can bring them to the community of believers and do everything in your power but they can choose to walk a different direction. And that's hard, right? It's a general statement. Generally speaking, you will put yourself in a better situation if you do this. That's wisdom literature is like that. So it's a generality here, baking bread. It's also an ultimate truth, maybe, rather than an immediate truth, meaning this. Ultimately, <laughs> because God is in control, Right now, they're in, maybe in hunger, but ultimately, God's going to take care of them. It's looking longer term, down the road, that sort of thing. David says, do good, dwell in the land, enjoy safe pasture. Do good. It's not the source of your faith, the good, but it's the fruit. It's the results of your faith, doing good. Dwell in the land, enjoy safe pastures. To me, that just speaks of the great shepherd, he says, pretend that you just know that you're a sheep under the care of the great shepherd. Dwell in the land, enjoy the pasture as he brings you to that. 
Enjoy the benefits of being under the control of a great shepherd. Psalm 16, 5 and 6, there's a great chapter, one of my favorite ones, Psalms, and here's a couple verses out of that. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. The, the sentence there that, that really struck me when I read this a long time ago was the idea of the boundary lines. They've fallen for me in pleasant places. I love that. It's like the shepherd brings the sheep to a pasture and he kind of establishes the boundaries for them to be in. And it's like the sheep looking around going, I like, I like where I'm at. My boundaries. Now in our lives, the sovereign Lord has put us where we are by his grace, by his power. And our heart and our desire is to say, I love where my boundary lines are. They've fallen in pleasant places. It's too easy sometimes to covet and to compare rather than be content with what we have. And so this is the heart of contentment, of seeing how God has drawn our boundary lines in our life, and they've fallen in pleasant places. I love it. Thank you, Lord, and being content in them. Verse 4 is the second verb, and I love this one, delight. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. I want to give credit to Aaron Adams, who drew our around the corner out in our fireside room is this verse. And when I started thinking about the Psalms and which verse would be good, I think I mentioned this, but this verse caught my attention. Why? Because if nothing else, I would love for us all just to take delight in the Lord. Just love Him. Take delight in everything about Him and everything that He's given to us. Take delight. That's a loaded word. Just a couple thoughts, and this came up last week where it talks about drinking from the river of delights in Psalm 36, verse 8. Delights, that Hebrew word, is the same word that we get the word Eden from, the garden of Eden. That idea of delighting in the Lord, it was a picture of that. Adam and Eve, in the provisions and the beauty and the perfection that was Garden of Eden, they were delighting in it. Eden, that's the Hebrew noun form of that word. This idea of delighting is, it's, it's like your deliberate redirection of our attention from the wicked and what's going on over here and how unfair it is to the Lord. My focus shifts direct to him. Matthew 6, Jesus spoke this to his disciples and they were worrying about food and clothes. And as we do, and fretting, stressing out about that. And he, his words of wisdom in Matthew 6, where he simply said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things, all this stuff will be given to you. It'll be taken care of. Seek him first. Redirect, delight, focus on him. The rest will take care of itself. He will. And that's kind of this idea. By the way, the Lord, from verses 3 through 11, mentioned 10 times the Lord. Trust in the Lord, delight in the Lord. That's the focus of these verses, um, either directly or in pronoun form, 10 times in these verses. Thoughts, feelings, actions. We're going through a transformational leadership class as board and staff together, and we're learning some really cool things. And this came up, and it continues to come up in 
the way, if you think about our lives, how it starts with a thought, followed by a feeling, followed by our actions. And how when our actions are messed up, we need to go backwards a little bit, rethink it, which creates a different feeling, which creates a different action. And that's what David's saying here, okay? My action is I'm fretting, I'm being envious. I need to back it up a couple steps here. Rethink, without tripping over the bass drum here. New thought, I'm gonna delight in the Lord instead, okay? Then out of that comes this feeling of thanks. Then instead of fretting and envying, I'm gonna worship because I've redirected my attention. Okay, so we do that, and it says that here's a promise. He'll give you the desires of your heart. What does that mean? Does it mean when I delight in the Lord, I'm going to get everything I ask for? Right? That's, some people believe that, by the way. Prosperity theology is out there. That, hey, you know, you follow God, and everything's going to be great and dandy, and you're going to get everything you ask for, and probably more, and you're going to amass all this wealth. It's not where it's going here. The basic idea here, actually, the word delight, the verb form, Eden, the noun form is soft, pliable, delicate. What it's saying is God will shape your heart. If you're soft, you're pliable, delicate, God will shape your heart to desire the things he desires. You take delight in him, your heart, your desires will be soft and be moldable, pliable to what he wants. That's where it's going with that. The next word, verses five and six, the next verb, commit. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, he will do this, and here's the promise. He will make your righteous rewards shine like dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. Commit, that word means roll onto or roll away. Joshua 5, 9, I just, I went there and I wanted to read this verse if you could shoot that up there. This is the story where the people of Israel had crossed the Jordan River. They're preparing for the battle of Jericho. It's prior to that, they're in Gilgal. The Lord does something with them that is significant here. He reestablishes his covenant with his people. Circumcision is reestablished with the younger generation. Remember, they'd been wandering in the desert. The generation that had left Egypt had died in the desert. This is the sons and daughters of the original group that had come out of Egypt now sitting there outside of the city of Jericho. God says, we're gonna re now that we're in the land, we're gonna reestablish the covenant. So they established circumcision there and they also established the Passover. The Passover now continued from that day forward to today, still observed. So reestablishing the things that are important with the people of Israel. Joshua 5.9 says this. It says, The Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. This idea of rolling away. Taking all of that hurt and in a sense the memory of that Egypt and just rolling it away. And that's this idea of committing. We're rolling it over to the Lord. We're rolling it away to him and trusting him, giving it to him. Down at the bottom in my Bible, it says um, this roll away, this idea, uh, sounds like the Hebrew word for roll. So Gilgal, where they were at, 
sounds like the Hebrew word for roll. It's that same idea of committing, rolling away. 1 Peter 5, 7 says to cast all your cares upon him. Roll them, give them, give them over, commit. Commit them to the Lord because he cares for you. It's that same picture, it's the same idea. What's the result? He will do this if you trust him. There's gonna be a righteous reward, there's gonna be vindication. It's gonna shine like the noonday sun. It's just gonna be like breaking out of the clouds. It's gonna appear in beauty. So we trust in the Lord, we delight in the Lord, we commit our ways to him. And then look at verse seven, be still. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret, there's that word, seethe, boil, get hot inside, stressing about it. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. That's verse seven. Be still. This idea of not striving, this idea of letting go, of resting, giving it up to the Lord. Instead of getting all stirred up, stressing and envying and fretting, be still. You can't hear that word without thinking of Psalm 4610. I have it in my house in about three places because <laughs> I need to be reminded. The verse says, basically the Lord is speaking here and he says, be still, know that I am God. We can leave it there, but he goes on. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Be still, cease striving. Rest in me and know that I'm God. Know who I am. It's this idea we're turning over the things that are stressing us out to him, knowing that he's in control of everything, and I can trust him in this. Wait patiently for him, it says. You know, one of the things about waiting that's difficult is there's nothing you can do about it. This is where God says, it's not going to happen right now, so you're going to have to wait. We can't force the issue. We've got to learn to trust him. And those are hard times. Waiting is not my favorite thing to do. I don't know about you, but it's definitely not mine. I like to get things going. I like to control things. Wait. Be still before me. One of my commentaries said, wait in obedience as a servant, wait in hope as an heir, and wait in expectation as a believer. I thought that's, that's what it's all about. Look what verse 8 says. Verses 8 through 11. So as you're trusting, as you're delighting, as you're committing your way, as you're being still, there's something you need to be aware of. Refrain from anger, turn from wrath. Do not fret. There's that word again. Reminding, in case you missed it in verse one, I'm gonna keep putting it in here, David says. It leads only to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. I'm gonna come back to that phrase because it's key. A little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. So, first of all, we need to refrain from something here, and that is anger and wrath. The word anger, by the way, in Hebrew phrasing, it has, it's kind of the same root word from what we get nostrils from, which is interesting to me because when you're angry, one of the things physiologically that happens to you, your nostrils kind of flare out. Maybe you haven't noticed that. 
but they kind of do. And so in the Hebrew mind, that's just kind of a way of kind of picturing that, this flaring nostrils like a bull. That's anger. And wrath is just the word hot. It's like a glaring fire. Refrain. Now, okay, Ephesians 4.26, be angry, but don't sin. What's going on? Is there a contradiction? What's going on? Ephesians 4 is speaking of our emotion of anger that we will and do naturally experience. We're going to get angry. So it says, go ahead and do that. However, with this one caveat, do not sin. Remember, anger is simply emotion, but if you let it hang around, if you let it fester, uh, it's going to become a problem. Human anger, righteous anger, distinguishing between those two. Human anger is all about injustice to me. I'm angry because life's not fair to me. Righteous anger is I'm angry because I see injustice being done to others or towards God. And so I'm on their side and I'm coming to their aid. And so there's that righteous anger, which is good, but there's a selfish anger that sometimes leads our life. And I think he's speaking to that. But the idea is don't let it go too long. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath, Ephesians 4, right? Don't let it sit. Don't let it go for days and days because it will become a problem. Anger, resentment, envy, fretting, all these things can stir in our souls and take us away from where God wants us to be. Look at verses 9 through 11, the future of the righteous and the wicked. And this is going to summarize really from verse 9 down to like verse 33. I'm going to give you a summary of what a lot of this centerpiece of this chapter is going to be about. Here's what it says. Those who are evil will be destroyed. That word destroyed is five times. From here forward, it's used in this chapter. Cut off. Depends on what translation you use. Cut off. So there's the wicked. What's going to happen with the wicked, God says? They're going to be destroyed. They're going to be cut off from the people of God and from a relationship with God. That's pretty severe stuff, okay? But look what it says. For those who are evil will be destroyed. Those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. This is a phrase that goes through this whole chapter five times, starting in verse 9 and continuing on. Uh, Verse 9, verse 11, verse 22, Verse 29, verse 34, inheriting the land. What's going on there? The meek will inherit the land, verse 11. What does that sound like to you? The meek will inherit the land. Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. Matthew 5, verse 5, Jesus said the very same thing. A thousand years later, he said, the meek will inherit the earth. The meek. Jesus knew Psalm 37, and he's referring to, in fact, one of the commentaries says this whole chapter is just an expose on that beatitude. And I don't think they're far from the truth there. This idea of inheriting the land, it's the story of the Bible, the meek. If you were in Sunday school, you understand what I'm saying here. Big screen, little screen. Big screen is what the world wants to tell us is if you force your own way, if you get a good lawyer, if you're, if the strong will survive, Jesus in the small screen of our heart is speaking to us saying, look, it's the meek, it's those who trust me. It's those who are peacemakers. They're the ones who are gonna be successful and it's very different from what the world wants to 
proclaimed to us. They're going to inherit the land. This idea of land, inheriting the land, it's the story of the Bible. The Eden story. Paradise lost. Adam and Eve turned their back on God. They sinned and they were kicked out of the garden, right? But then, Genesis 12, God appears to Abraham and says, leave the land that you're in now and go to a land I'll show you and I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make a great nation of you. So there's something in the land. Then, in Isaiah 65, 17, we read this. A lot of times we think of the land as kind of, you know, just an Old Testament thing. This is Isaiah 65, 17. I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. That sounds a little bit like Revelation all of a sudden, doesn't it? New heaven, new earth. Land. Part of the promise, heavens and earth being re recreated. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, meek will inherit the earth. 1 Peter 3 speaks of the same promise. 2 Peter, I'm sorry, 3.13. In keeping with this promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. The land. And then, last week I mentioned Revelation 21 and 22. New heaven, new earth, end of the story and the beauty of where it all started garden of eden delight new heaven new earth revelation 21 and 22 there's a tree of life there's this there's a stream flowing from the throne of god it's it's we've come full circle it's a beautiful story this land inheriting the land the last verb is in verse 34 so the chapter goes on and it talks a lot about the wicked and the righteous and how the wicked are going to fail. They're going to be destroyed. Their plans are not going to succeed. The righteous are going to be rewarded greatly because they're faithful and God's going to take care of them. But look at verse 34. There's the sixth verb that really stood out to me when I just read this passage. And it said this. It says, hope. Hope in the Lord. Keep his way. He will exalt you to inherit the land. There it is. When the wicked are destroyed, you will see it. There's a promise. I've seen a wicked and ruthless man flourishing like a luxuriant native tree, but he soon passed away and was no more. We've come full circle from verse one. There's the wicked. They look like a tree. They're grass and they're growing and they're flourishing. Guess what? They won't forever. Though I looked for him and could not be found, consider the blameless, observe the upright. A future awaits those who seek peace. But all sinners will be destroyed. There will be no future for the wicked. The salvation of the righteous comes from the Lord. He is their stronghold in times of trouble. The Lord helps them. He delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. It's a beautiful way to end this chapter. Starts out with fretting and envying the wicked. It ends with trusting God, knowing that he's in control, and there's a plan here of what God is going to be doing. This is the gospel. The hope is about future. It's seeing that we will inherit that land. We'll see it. It's part of the promise that God made to us. There's the picture of those who, a future await those who seek peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will see God. The Beatitudes, Jesus spoke of this. This idea of shalom, security, plenty, wholeness, relationships, everything is the way it should be. That's shalom. That's the Hebrew picture of peace. 
It's not just a ceasing of warfare. It's relationship word. Living in relationship and a wholeness and a security. It's a beautiful, well-rounded word. And that's the hope of the righteous. The salvation of the righteous comes from the Lord. We know that's true. He's the source of our salvation. In conclusion, instead of spending time fretting, which is easy to do, and envying what we see around us, do this. Trust in the Lord. Faith. Delight. Focus on Him. Let Him shape your heart to desire what He desires. That's really what delight's all about. Commit your way. Roll it over to Him. Commit your way to the Lord. Wait for the Lord. Trust Him. Rest. Don't stop striving. Let it go. Trusting His sovereignty. And ultimately, hoping for the Lord. Knowing that everything He promised is future. He will fulfill it. Not just here. There's blessings here. But ultimately, there's a future for those who trust Him. This idea of the land will inherit the land. That's a promise not just in David's day, but it's for you and me. If we know the Lord, we're going to inherit that land. Salvation comes from the Lord. It's provided by His death on the cross. We're going to be coming to the table right now. I'm asked Joe if he'd come up. And just ending with this one thought. You know, it's easy to say, the wicked's over there, I'm over here. And the wicked are getting what they deserve and good, and I'm the righteous and I'm getting what I deserve. And I think, I want to shape your mind to think differently and realize the fact that we were once the wicked. Apart from the death of Christ, apart from His grace in our lives, we were there. So instead of saying them, pray for them because they need God's grace in their life. And without God's grace, that would be us very in reality. But we are His people and we enjoy the blessings. So as we come to the table, we celebrate the cross where sin and righteousness met in the person of Jesus Christ and where victory was gained. Let's do that today.